Book Twelfth, Chapter Two of the Ambassadors by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oh, you're all right, you're all right, he almost impatiently declared, his impatience being, moreover, not for her pressure, but for her scruple. More and more distinct to him was the tune to which she would have had the matter out with Chad, more and more vivid for him the idea that she had been nervous as to what he might be able to stand. Yes, it had been a question, if he had stood, what the scene on the river had given him, and though the young man had doubtless opined in favour of his recuperation, her own last word must have been that she should feel easier in seeing for herself. That was it, unmistakably. She was seeing for herself. What he could stand was thus, in these moments, in the balance for Strether, who reflected, as he became fully aware of it, that he must properly brace himself. He wanted fully to appear to stand all he might, and there was a certain command of the situation for him in this very wish not to look too much at sea. She was ready with everything, but so sufficiently was he. That is, he was at one point the more prepared of the two, inasmuch as for all her cleverness she couldn't produce on the spot, and it was surprising, an account of the motive of her note. He had the advantage that his pronouncing her all right gave him for an inquiry. "'May I ask, delighted as I've been to come, if you've wished to say something special?' He spoke as if she might have seen he had been waiting for it, not indeed with discomfort, but with natural interest. Then he saw that she was a little taken aback, was even surprised herself at the detail she had neglected, the only one ever yet having somehow assumed he would know, would recognize, would leave some things not to be said. She looked at him, however, an instant, as if to convey that if he wanted them all— "'Selfish and vulgar, that's what I must seem to you. You've done everything for me, and here I am, as if I were asking for more. But it isn't,' she went on, "'because I'm afraid, though I am, of course, afraid, as a woman in my position always is. I mean, it isn't because one lives in terror. It isn't because of that one is selfish, for I'm ready to give you my word to-night that I don't care, don't care what still may happen and what I may lose. I don't ask you to raise your little finger for me again, nor do I wish so much as to mention to you what we've talked of before, either my danger or my safety, or his mother or his sister, or the girl he may marry, or the fortune he may make or miss, or the right or the wrong of any kind he may do. If, after the help one has had from you, one can't either take care of oneself or simply hold one's tongue, one must renounce all claim to be an object of interest. It's in the name of what I do care about that I've tried still to keep hold of you. How can I be indifferent, she asked, to how I appear to you? And, as he found himself unable immediately to say, Why, if you're going, need you after all? Is it impossible you should stay on, so that one mayn't lose you? Impossible I should live with you here instead of going home? Not with us, if you object to that, but near enough to us somewhere, for us to see you. Well, she beautifully brought out, when we feel we must. How shall we not sometimes feel it? I've wanted to see you often when I couldn't, she pursued, all these last weeks. How shan't I then miss you now, with the sense of your being gone for ever? Then, as if the straightness of this appeal, taking him unprepared, had visibly left him wondering, 
Where is your home, moreover, now? What has become of it? I've made a change in your life. I know I have. I've upset everything in your mind as well, in your sense of, what shall I call it, all the decencies and possibilities. It gives me a kind of detestation. She pulled up short. Oh, but he wanted to hear. Detestation of what? Of everything, of life. Ah, that's too much, he laughed, or too little. Too little, precisely, she was eager. What I hate is myself, when I think that one has to take so much to be happy out of the lives of others, and that one isn't happy even then. One does it to cheat oneself and to stop one's mouth, but that's only at the best for a little. The wretched self is always there, always making one somehow a fresh anxiety. What it comes to is that it's not, that it's never a happiness, any happiness at all, to take. The only safe thing is to give. It's what plays you least false. Interesting, touching, strikingly, sincere as she let these things come from her, she yet puzzled and troubled him, so fine was the quaver of her quietness. He felt what he had felt before with her, that there was always more behind what she showed, and more and more again behind that. "'You know so, at least,' she added, "'where you are.' "'You ought to know it indeed, then, for isn't what you've been giving exactly what has brought us together in this way? You've been making, as I've so fully let you know I've felt,' Strether said, "'the most precious present I've ever seen made, and if you can't sit down peacefully on that performance, you are, no doubt, born to torment yourself.' But you ought, he wound up, to be easy. And not trouble you any more, no doubt, not thrust on you even the wonder and the beauty of what I've done, only let you regard our business as over and well over, and see you depart in a peace that matches my own. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt, she nervously repeated, all the more that I don't really pretend I believe you couldn't, for yourself, not have done what you have. I don't pretend you feel yourself victimized, for this, evidently, is the way you live, and it's what, we're agreed, is the best way. Yes, as you say, she continued after a moment, I ought to be easy and rest on my work. Well, then, here I am doing so. I am easy. You'll have it for your last impression. When is it you say you go? she asked with a quick change. He took some time to reply. His last impression was more and more so mixed a one. It produced in him a vague disappointment, a drop that was deeper even than the fall of his elation the previous night. The good of what he had done, if he had done so much, wasn't there to enliven him quite to the point that would have been ideal for a grand, gay finale. Women were thus endlessly absorbent, and to deal with them was to walk on water. What was at bottom the matter with her, embroider as she might and disclaim as she might, what was at bottom the matter with her was simply Chad himself. It was of Chad she was, after all, renewedly afraid. The strange strength of her passion was the very strength of her fear. She clung to him, Lambert Strether, as to a source of safety she had tested, and generous, graceful, truthful as she might try to be, exquisite as she was, she dreaded the term of his being within reach. With this sharpest perception yet, it was like a chill in the air to him. It was almost appalling that a creature so fine could be, by mysterious forces, a creature so exploited. For at the end of all things they were mysterious. She had but made Chad what he was. 
so why could she think she had made him infinite? She had made him better, she had made him best, she had made him anything one would, but it came to our friend with supreme queerness that he was none the less only Chad. Strether had the sense that he, a little, had made him too. His high appreciation had, as it were, consecrated her work. The work, however admirable, was nevertheless of the strict human order, and in short it was marvellous that the companion of mere earthly joys, of comforts, aberrations, however one classed them, within the common experience should be so transcendently prized. It might have made Strether hot or shy, as such secrets of others brought home sometimes do make us, but he was held there by something so hard that it was fairly grim. This was not the discomposure of last night. That had quite passed. Such discomposures were a detail. The real coercion was to see a man ineffably adored. There it was again. It took women. It took women. If to deal with them was to walk on water, what wonder that the water rose? And it had never surely risen higher than round this woman. He presently found himself taking a long look from her, and the next thing he knew had uttered all his thought. "'You're afraid for your life.' It drew out her long look, and he soon enough saw why. A spasm came into her face. The tears she had already been unable to hide overflowed at first in silence, and then, as the sound suddenly comes from a child, quickened to gasps, to sobs. She sat and covered her face with her hands, giving up all attempt at a manner. "'It's how you see me, it's how you see me,' she caught her breath with it, "'and it's as I am, and as I must take myself, and of course it's no matter.' Her emotion was at first so incoherent that he could only stand there at a loss, stand with his sense of having upset her, though of having done it by the truth. He had to listen to her in a silence that he made no immediate effort to attenuate, feeling her doubly woeful amid all her dim, diffused elegance, consenting to it as he had consented to the rest, and even conscious of some vague inward irony in the presence of such a fine, free range of bliss and bale. He couldn't say it was not no matter, for he was serving her to the end, he now knew anyway, quite as if what he had thought of her had nothing to do with it. It was actually, moreover, as if he didn't think of her at all, as if he could think of nothing but the passion, mature, abysmal, pitiful, she represented, and the possibilities she betrayed. She was older for him to-night, visibly less exempt from the touch of time, but she was as much as ever the finest and subtlest creature, the happiest apparition it had been given him in all his years to meet and yet he could see her there as vulgarly troubled in very truth as a maid-servant crying for her young man. The only thing was that she judged herself as the maid-servant wouldn't, the weakness of which wisdom too, the dishonour of which judgment, seemed but to sink her lower. Her collapse, however, no doubt, was briefer, and she had in a manner recovered herself before he intervened. "'Of course I'm afraid for my life, but that's nothing. It isn't that.' He was silent a little longer, as if thinking what it might be. "'There's something I have in mind that I can still do.' But she threw off at last, with a sharp, sad headshake, drying her eyes, what he could still do. "'I don't care for that. Of course, as I've said, you're acting in your wonderful way for yourself. And what's for yourself is no more my business. 
though I may reach out unholy hands so clumsily to touch it, than if it were something in Timbuktu. It's only that you don't snub me, as you've had fifty chances to do. It's only your beautiful patience that makes one forget one's manners. In spite of your patience all the same, she went on, you'd do anything rather than be with us here, even if that were possible. You'd do everything for us but be mixed up with us, which is a statement you can easily answer to the advantage of your own manners. You can say, what's the use of talking of things that at the best are impossible? What is, of course, the use? It's only my little madness. You'd talk if you were tormented. And I don't mean now about him. Oh, for him! Positively, strangely, bitterly, as it seemed to Strether, she gave him for the moment away. You don't care what I think of you, but I happen to care what you think of me, and what you might, she added, what you perhaps even did. He gained time. What I did? Did think before, before this. Didn't you think? But he had already stopped her. I didn't think anything. I never think a step further than I'm obliged to. That's perfectly false, I believe, she returned, except that you may, no doubt, often pull up when things become too ugly, or even, I'll say, to save you a protest, too beautiful. At any rate, even so far as it's true, we've thrust on you appearances that you've had to take in, and that have therefore made your obligation. Ugly or beautiful, it doesn't matter what we call them, you were getting on without them, and that's where we're detestable. We bore you, that's where we are, and we may well, for what we've cost you. All you can do now is not to think at all, and I who should have liked to seem to you, well, sublime." He could only, after a moment, re-echo Miss Barras. "'You're wonderful!' "'I'm old and abject and hideous,' she went on, as without hearing him. "'Abject above all, or old above all. It's when one's old that it's worst. I don't care what becomes of it. Let what will. There it is. It's a doom. I know it. You can't see it more than I do myself. Things have to happen as they will.' with which she came back again to what, face to face with him, had so quite broken down. Of course you wouldn't, even if possible, and no matter what may happen to you, be near us. But think of me, think of me. She exhaled it into air. He took refuge in repeating something he had already said, and that she had made nothing of. There's something I believe I can still do. And he put his hand out for good-bye. She again made nothing of it. She went on with her insistence. That won't help you. There's nothing to help you. Well, it may help you, he said. She shook her head. There's not a grain of certainty in my future, for the only certainty is that I shall be the loser in the end. She hadn't taken his hand, but she moved with him to the door. That's cheerful, he laughed, for your benefactor. What's cheerful for me, she replied, is that we might, you and I, have been friends. That's it. That's it. You see how, as I say, I want everything. I've wanted you, too. Ah, but you've had me, he declared at the door, with an emphasis that made an end. End of Book Twelfth, Chapter Two